Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our Christmas series today, The Hope of the Ages, with a message titled, Christ the Better Elijah. So turning your Bibles to 1 Kings and 2 Kings as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9 tell of the account of Jesus going up a high mountain. Now, the mountain's name is not mentioned. It's either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, but he takes three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. He wants to be with just the three. While he's there, he's transfigured. That is, his physical appearance is transformed. And it showed Peter, James, and John something of the glory he had before he became a man. And then while his face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are white as light, suddenly there appears before him Moses and Elijah, and he's speaking with them. And so why are these two men who had lived long before Jesus suddenly there? And the answer to the informed Bible reader should be clear. Moses is the great lawgiver. Elijah represents the prophets. That is, when the Jews spoke of the Bible, they would refer to it as the law and the prophets. And here the great significance is that all the law and the prophets have come to honor Jesus. And so as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, two men representing, well, the entire First Testament revelation from God, they have come to honor him. And we know this is so because while Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah, a cloud envelops Jesus and the voice of the Father speaks. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is, as great as the glory is of Moses and Elijah, the glory of Jesus far surpasses them. Now, since this is Christmas season, it's most fitting to consider the greatness of the one who was sent from heaven to dwell among us. But we can't understand true greatness until we see it in contrast to something else. And furthermore, it's not a definition of greatness if we compare Jesus to someone who who was not great at all. I mean, we've all heard it, haven't we? Perhaps we've even done it. You know, someone's going to say, well, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that person as if it's any statement of virtue to compare ourselves with the worst of people. You know, but people do it all the time. They say, well, at least I haven't done, and then you fill in the blank. But in defining the nature of Jesus, I've sought to compare him with the greatest among us. And so today, to say that Christ is greater than Elijah was to say something quite remarkable. Now, if you don't know who he was, let's begin by speaking about him and his amazing life. Unlike Jesus, We don't know anything about his ancestry or even who his parents were. Elijah's first introduced in 1 Kings 17. You know, verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Tishbe in Gilead was in the tribal allotment of Manasseh. It was east of the Jordan River. And that's all we have of his background. But with that short introduction, we get into the action immediately. You know, he has a word as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. I, his prophet, declare there won't be dew or rain for years. It will only come again when I declare it will. Now, in order to understand the significance of that, we need a bit of background. The king in Israel in those days is Ahab, as wicked a man as you could find. He's the son of Omri, king of northern Israel, who began a new dynasty having defeated and killed his rivals. It was essentially a civil war. Omri won. 
The Bible says that Omri was evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all who were before him. That is, until his son succeeded him. Omri reigned 12 years, then he died, and with his death, Ahab comes on the scene. Ahab, following his father's lead, seems intent on making idolatry a norm in Israel. He marries a woman named Jezebel, and she's the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. And together, Ahab and Jezebel are determined to make Israel the center of Baal worship. And so they import and they train hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah. And it's here that it becomes fascinating. See, Baal is the god of fertility, and he is said to have authority over rain and the fertility of the land. And now here comes a prophet of the Lord. And we haven't heard of him until now, but in some fashion, he manages an audience before King Ahab and announces that he's a prophet of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And from now on, well, there won't be any rain until he says so. And with that, the worst drought in Israel's history begins. And Elijah, every day it doesn't rain, is making a mockery of the king and queen and their worship of that incompetent and impotent God called Baal. Elijah himself, in order to survive what will become desperate times, is instructed by God to go live by a small stream east of the Jordan River. And then his life of miracles begins. Each morning and evening, ravens appear bringing him bread and meat so that he's going to survive. And the land and its people languish. In the meantime, Elijah's busy. 1 Kings 17 tells us that he's going to a town of Zarephath where he is to command a widow to feed him. The widow says, look, I'm dying in this drought. How am I going to take care of you and your need for food? I've got nothing. And so Elijah commands that her jar of flour and her jug of oil will never run out until the drought ends. And so it was. Both the widow and Elijah will survive. Fast forward. Now the drought has lasted three years and it becomes desperate. Chapter 18 simply says the famine, the lack of food has become severe. And now at a time when King Ahab is sending his servants to find any vegetation just to keep his animals alive. And in this time of desperation, when, you know, people and animals are dying, God tells Elijah, go and show yourself to Ahab. And when King Ahab sees Elijah, the first words out of his mouth are, is that you, you troubler of Israel? See, there's no doubt in the king's mind that this man has the power over nature. He's spoken and the sky has dried up. But Elijah's not intimidated. He answers the king without hesitation. He says, I have not troubled Israel. You have. You filled the land with Baal worship, with Baal priests and Asherah priestesses. And in so doing, you've abandoned the law of God. And that's why this has happened. No, no, you won't blame me for this mess. But Elijah's not happy and just simply trading insults and accusations. He's got a demand. Now then, get the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, all 850 of them who eat at Queen Jezebel's table, come and meet me on Mount Carmel. It's time to decide who is God. And so it begins. 1 Kings chapter 18 is a remarkable chapter. As the 850 pagan prophets gather, there on the other side of the divide is the one prophet of the Lord. And they're watching the spectacle as a great company of people. And Elijah looks at the crowd and he says, How long will you people of this land go on limping between two different opinions? You know, sometimes you worship the Lord. Sometimes you worship Baal and Asherah. Don't you think it's time to figure out who is God? And with that, Elijah demands two altars be built and with a bull be laid on each altar. Instead of burning the sacrifice, he says, let the one who is God burn the sacrifice. 
And so the pagan priests call out to Baal, O Baal, they say, answer us. And while they're crying aloud and they're gashing themselves, Elijah's standing aside and he's mocking. Call louder, he says. Maybe Baal's on a holiday, or maybe he's fast asleep, or maybe he's in the outhouse trying to work out his intestinal problems. And at all this time, from early morning until noon, nothing happens, no fire, no answers from Baal, only the mockery of Elijah. Now it's Elijah's turn. Come near, he tells the people. And he repairs God's altar and puts a bull on it. And he says, soak the altar with water and drench it so that it can't be lit. It's got to be that wet. And then Elijah prays. 1 Kings 18, 36 and 37. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now then, that's it. No shouting, no gashing of himself, no frenzy, just that short prayer. And the fire of God fell and even burned up all the water that was in the trench around the altar. And all the people who were close up fell on their faces and a shout went out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And without even looking at the king, Elijah says, seize these pagan prophets who are the cause of all this mayhem in the land. And they slaughtered all 850 of them, striking a blow at Baal and Asherah worship. But Elijah's not done. He walks straight up to King Ahab and he says, I hear the sound of a rushing rain. And with that, Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel and he's bowing to the earth and he's praying. He says to his servants, go and look toward the Mediterranean Sea where we get all the clouds. Tell me what you see. And the servant comes back and he says, there's nothing. And Elijah repeats it seven times. And on the seventh time, the servant says, there's a little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. And Elijah says to his servants, go down now to Ahab and tell him to get into his chariot and race towards Samaria as fast as he can, lest the rain create such mud that it becomes impassable. And then the heavens grow black and there's a great rain. Such is the greatness of Elijah the man who crushed Baal worship and restored faith in the one true God. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Neufeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent Celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His purpose for our lives. An Advent Celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It's not hard to pick out a number of similarities between Elijah and Jesus. See, like Elijah, Jesus took on the false teachers of his day. You know, in Jesus' day, it wasn't the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Rather, I would argue, it was something even more sinister. The teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said of them, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, 
and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You know, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had taught that the law of Moses consisted of 613 commands, and they had articulated all of them. Then if that were not enough, they added to the laws the traditions of the elders. And added even to that, they built what they called a hedge around the law. You know, most Bible students are aware of all the additional laws surrounding, for instance, you know, a law to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so in order to make sure that no one violated the Sabbath, they added laws like a fence to make sure that no one even got close enough to violating the command. You know, the fence had everything to do with defining work and even regulating how far a person could walk on the Sabbath. And each one of these laws had to be maintained. You know, you might remember that Jesus was charged with violating the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath. You'll remember that when his followers in hunger picked heads of grain from wheat stalks and ate it, they were violating the Sabbath. That's what they were told. You might remember that when he told the lame man to pick up his mat and go home, the Pharisees were immediately there and they accused that man of breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath was just one of 613 laws and each law was surrounded by a fence, additional laws that also had to be observed. And Jesus saw through this stuff. He did not break the Sabbath, but he did break the added rules that had been built up, rules that didn't come from God. But things were even worse. The Midrash, a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament states, so you find that our father Abraham became heir of this and of the coming world simply by, watch this, the merit of faith with which he believed in the Lord. As it is written, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, I hope you heard that. You know, for some of the teachers of the law, even faith itself was just another command that if you kept it, it would be added to your account as a, well, as a brownie point, another thing that you did to earn your own righteousness. I mean, compare Elijah rebuking the false prophets with Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 13 to 15, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Yeah, I do know that theological issues in Elijah's time were so very different than those of Jesus. Elijah dealt with a problem of syncretism, you know, the idea that you could worship the Lord and at the same time worship Baal and Asherah. Jesus dealt with a very different problem, the idea that your law-keeping earned your way into righteousness rather than awaiting the gift of God's undeserved grace. But the ones who opposed both Elijah and Jesus were just as fierce. But there's another point of comparison here. Elijah demonstrated that he was a prophet of God by proclaiming God's word over nature, both in the advent of the famine and in the advent of the fire that fell from heaven and consumed the altar and its sacrifice. But in this matter, we find that Jesus does show himself to be much greater than Elijah. Elijah was very clear. He was but a prophet of God and that he was simply repeating God's words. And that's why he would say that he stood before the God of Israel and the God of Israel had said, you know, that there would be no rain or dew except when God told Elijah to speak up again. In Jesus' case, it was different. 
Remember him standing in the fishing boat as the storm in the Sea of Galilee was raging, and he simply speaks to the waves himself, be still. Nature obeys his voice. That's something Elijah knew nothing about. But they do share a similarity. The miracles of Jesus and the miracles of Elijah authenticated their ministry. It's hard to argue in the face of powerful and overwhelming miracles. And furthermore, Elijah does miracles by the power of God, miracles that, at least at the outset, seem as great as the miracles of Jesus. Let's go back to the time of the drought when the country's languishing in severe famine. Elijah has a room in the widow's house. And while he's there, the widow's son becomes ill and he dies. Elijah takes the dead boy, carries him up into the chamber where he stayed, and lays the boy on his bed. 1 Kings 17, 21 to 22. Then he stretched himself on the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. You know, Jesus raised three people from the dead. You know, the last of those was his friend Lazarus, who was laid into a tomb, and after four days his body was decaying, and the stench of death filled the tomb. Jesus stood before the open tomb and cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And out came Lazarus, still bound in his burial cloth. That was an outstanding miracle. Now, there are other points of comparison, but I would take us to a very end of Elijah's earthly life. So let's read about this remarkable moment. It's in 2 Kings 2, 1 to 3. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And as the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. You know, and with these words, we're launched into that last remarkable moment of Elijah's life. Elijah, by this time, has a disciple. His name is Elisha. He tells Elisha that he is to stay put while he goes across the Jordan. But Elisha will have none of it. He will not leave Elijah's side, for he knows what is about to happen. And he wants Elijah to bless him and to give him a double portion of his spirit. And Elijah responds, that's a hard thing to do. But if you see me when I'm taken away, it will be so. And then comes that remarkable moment. 2 Kings 2, 11 to 12 says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. You know, Elijah, along with another man named Enoch, are the only two men in history who did not die. That is not to say they never sinned. Elijah did sin. Well, he sinned in his unbelief when he ran away from Jezebel and hid in a cave and complained that God didn't seem to be doing anything about the evil in his day. But Elijah still was a remarkable man of God whom God rewarded by taking him home without seeing death. And it's precisely here that we see the superior greatness of Jesus. Jesus never sinned, and yet he bore the sins of the world. But in this, Jesus is so much greater than Elijah for rather than being taken to heaven in a chariot, he defeated death in the tomb, rose bodily, proved himself to be alive, and then was taken up into heaven with the sure word that he would come again. This Elijah did not do. No comparison between Jesus and Elijah is complete. 
if we don't consider the prophecies regarding Elijah in the future. And I point out two things. You know, first, let's read the very last words of the First Testament, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah says the Bible is the forerunner of the Messiah. You know, I'll say no more here but than to say in Matthew 17, Jesus pointed out that it was John the Baptist who played the role of coming to the people in the power of Elijah. And second, the last time we encounter Elijah, well, seems to be in Revelation chapter 11, the last book of the Bible. Revelation speaks of two witnesses who will play a vital role in the second coming of Christ. One has the power to turn the waters into blood, which is surely a reference to Moses. And the other has the power to shut up the sky so that there will be no rain. That's a reference to Elijah. God has given Elijah one final role to play. He is to play a key role in ushering in the second coming of Christ. And in this way, it is the great honor of Elijah to say with John the Baptist that he's unworthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah Jesus, but that his role is to prepare the hearts of all for the greatest moment in history, the return of Jesus. Elijah, as great as he was, would testify to one infinitely greater than he. And so at Christmas, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, we do well to think of this man, Elijah, surely one of the greatest men who ever lived, and yet his greatness is so overshadowed as the sun's greatness overshadows the light of the moon. Christmas, what a story of glory. Thanks so much, John, but let me ask you a bit of an odd question. But why do you know so much about Baal worship, and should we be concerned? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a reason to be concerned. Uh, it's because when I was uh, back in my university career, and I had taken a course on the ancient Near East, I came upon uh, a number of documents that had been translated into English, and I locked myself in the library and read them, and they were the Baal documents and about the formation of that religion. And um, I had, my prof came back and said to me, you're one of only a few people on the earth who've actually read those things. So uh, that's why I know something about it. But no, I'm not at, at all tempted uh, to become a Baal worshiper. I'm thankful for Jesus rescuing me. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. By the time you hear this, Christmas excitement has already begun to fill the air. Our Yuletide expectations are seeded by childhood memories, media hype, vendor advertising, and church traditions. We forecast Christmas with such heightened hopes that can often disappoint Christmas morning. Well, this month, Dr. John shares a new Christmas series called The Hope of the Ages, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's intent. Jesus, the fulfillment of our Christmas aspirations, the hope of the ages. It's a message that must be shared year-round, and your partnership makes that possible. Thanks for all you do, and please continue to stand with us as we strive toward our year-end goal of $490,000 by December 31st. 
Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to make your gift today.